Acts chapter 20. And um, we've been in this chapter for three weeks now. And um, we're going to finish it up this morning, Lord willing. And so we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 38 this morning. Uh, a message we call The Purchase of His Blood. I want to begin reading in verse 17. We'll read through the end of the chapter. And um, uh, we'll do that. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. This is God's word. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And they came to him and he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received of the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now I behold, I know that none of you among I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for or shepherd the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. And they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your spirit. That your spirit is indispensable here. And Lord, we depend upon him. And we in brokenness say that we need you this morning. We have no might or power or intellect or ability. If you would use this text, you will have to do it through the power of the Spirit. And so we ask for that. 
Lord, I do want to think of a sister church this morning. I want to think of, pray for Grace Gospel Church in Huntington this morning. Church very similar to ours in an old neighborhood, landlocked in a bad section of town, seeking to be faithful and having an outreach this morning. I pray for that as they have that quartet and outreach time outside into the tent this morning in their parking lot. I pray that you would draw souls to yourself and use it for your glory. Lord, I pray that you'd use this text to teach us about the nature and anatomy of your church and the, the love you have for it, that you would purchase it with your own blood. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the uh, fun things that I get to do is, because we get to be around teenagers a lot here, and uh, that's, that's a, a good thing. Um, I want to make sure that um, a, a, a very good thing that we get to be around teens. And one of the funny things that's happened is, um, I know we have some folks that used to be at, uh, work at shoe stores and uh, things like that, is, is how um, uh, valuable um, athletic footwear is and how important that is to particularly adolescent boys. And... Um, and so, um, by the way, there is this debate going on in my house of whether they are called tennis shoes or sneakers, and, and we want to settle that this morning. Uh, all in favor of calling them tennis shoes, raise your hand. All in favor of calling them sneakers, raise your hand. Oh my, I don't think we have a... Um, anyway, um, <laughs> didn't work, so sometimes you can't... It doesn't, doesn't work. That's what... The, Jamie and I have that debate. I'm on the tennis shoe side. She says, you don't even know how to play tennis. And anyway, but since I'm the one with behind the podium, I'm going to get to call them what I want to call them, at least for the next 45 minutes. Uh, tennis shoes. Okay, so uh, she's a Yankee, yes. So, um, so some of the boys have these, but I remember when I was in, uh, I remember one of the first set of Jordan sneakers came out, and so I was kind of just like them. I had a pair of Jordans from the finish line at the Meadowbrook Mall, and um, and they were just super cool. And, uh, but what's funny is when some of the boys have these expensive tennis shoes on, uh, that you would think they had like patent leather things on. If someone's, scu- I mean, their jeans are, fu- they literally buy them with holes in them. But then if someone scuffs their tennis shoe, it's like, oh no, you know, I mean, it's like, oh, they have to run and get things. I mean, they don't notice anything else about body odor or anything, but those tennis shoes will be in pristine condition. And they'll say, I got my Jordans on, I got my these on guess what, how much they cost. And it's a status of honor because you paid so much for these tennis shoes. Um, you paid so much for them. And then something happens as boys mature and they move past that, what their tennis shoes cost. It moves to something like trucks. And so they'll see a guy and you'll see him like, oh man, did you see his truck? I bet he's got, and they'll name a dollar amount in that truck. And they'll think, well, that's an awesome. And ladies do the same. You see that bag she has? I bet that costs, it's a this or this or that. And I don't know why, you know, but it is. It's that bag. And, you, and so we point the value by what the purchase price was. The value of something is seen in how much one paid for it. And we'll even brag on when we get a deal. This thing I got is worth this much, and I got it for this price. But we still intrinsically know that the price showed the value of it. 
In this section of Scripture, we see Paul, he says one thing that he accounts as worth nothing and something else that is worth an infinite price because of what it was paid for with. And we see that contrast coming here. So we've seen this in this chapter. He is talking about kind of the summation of his life, that he's giving his life to this one goal. This, so he says in verse 24 of the passage, he considers my life of no value. Or other ways, that he was my life of any value. Or another way of saying that is his life is worth nothing. Or he would say, neither do I count my life dear unto myself. I'm counting my life as not having value. But, he has, but his goal, kind of the summation of his life, his fight song, his, his all-consuming, his single focus, his one passion, he says, when he says in verse 24, my, per- this, my life's no value, my purpose is to finish my course. Or if only I may finish my course. Or my only aim is to finish my course. Or so that I might finish my course with joy. So I'm counting this, and then he exhorts these elders, he'll say, shepherd the church that was purchased by his blood. So there's something of no value and something of infinite value because of what it was paid for with, the purchase of Christ's blood. And so we're partway through Paul's challenge, his charge to these Ephesian elders And I mentioned this last week that this is the first speech in the New Testament uh, to Christians. Most of Paul's speeches were to unbelievers, Jews, God-fearers, pagan Gentiles. And then here we see this in chapter 20 um, where he is giving a speech to Christians, a talk to Christians. We see this this defense of his character and ministry paralleled in, in Philippians chapter 1. And so, for, so two weeks ago, we saw he's, he's talking about his character, the character of Paul, the gospel of what it produced in him. And last week, we looked at the calling of Paul and the calling he had given himself. And this week, we're going to look at the charge of Paul to these leaders. So the character of Paul, the calling of Paul, and this week, the charge of Paul to this church. Now, the, Paul's calling, as we saw last week, was that, that it is rooted all in the grace of God, that he had this charge, this goal up from the grace of God, uh, the, that God's grace, he'd received this calling to, to, by God's grace of repentance to proclaim, to testify of the repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says he received to testify, verse 24, of the gospel of the grace of God. So gospel and grace, those words often Paul uses along that grace, word of his grace, the gospel, the gospel message, the truth, that all encompassing the core of the Christian message, all of that. So this is what consumes him. Everything is about the gospel and testifying to the gospel. Paul is what we would call in our cliche gospel-centered. He's a gospel man. He is consumed with the gospel. The gospel had produced many things in Paul's life. It produced a humility in his calling. He says, says, with humility and with tears and with lots of trials. Because of the gospel's work in his life, he was humble. He was consistent. He was transparent and open. Um, We talked about this, that 
you know, the, when we look at all these qualities of Paul and his ministry and his character, it's, we're kind of like, oh my word, I, th- this is defeating. But when we realize it's all because of the gospel, the gospel produced that in him. It produced that. It produced a commitment to persevere through hard times. He was a gospel-centered guy. Um, when I was a kid, there used to be these like things you would blow up that would be like a, a, a clown, and they had like a weight in the bottom of it. And it was almost like a little punching bag. And you'd punch that thing, and it would fall over and come right back up. And, and Paul's kind of like that with the gospel. He has this trial, pops back up gospel. This trial pops back up gospel. Everything's like gospel, gospel, gospel. Oh, you're going to say bad things about me? Well, the gospel says worse. I'm a terrible, rotten sinner. The worst thing you can say about me is the truth is far worse. So gospel, gospel, gospel. He's a gospel-centered guy. And so he's humble about that. He's, he perseveres through these hardships because of the gospel. So he says in verse 20, I didn't keep anything back. I left it all in the field. I kept nothing back. He wasn't some fair-weather guy about this. He was committed no matter what to happen. I mentioned the story about the person who wrote the love letter. This is my dear, I would climb the highest mountain, swim the widest tree, and cross the burning desert, and die at the stake for thee. P.S. I'll see you Saturday if it doesn't rain. <laughs> Paul was not like that. He didn't just have empty flattery. Oh God, my all is on the altar. I surrender all. Well, I'm not going to come next week. I mean, the ball game's going to be on, and I got to go do this. All to Jesus, I so you know, and and you're like, we're just like that. Paul's not like that. He's committed because of what the gospel done in his life, and because of the gospel, it made this message made this message broad and inclusive. He says, "I'm testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, no matter what, all." All welcome, no matter what. And the gospel produced that tenacity for the truth. And because he had that tenacity for the truth, that he was all constantly gospel, he wanted to protect the gospel. And this is what it is, is that we are together for the gospel, and we're also separated unto the gospel. And just like there's, there's often sides, there's ditches on either side of the road, and sometimes we can so much focus on separating from false teaching that we're not together with those that are for right teaching. And then there's some people that are so much as being together for right teaching, that they're not separating from those that are against wrong teaching. And Paul's striking because the gospel is what holds me in the center, that I am separated under the gospel and together for the gospel. And see, we see that when we come to this section where he charges this, these elders. And so to back up a little bit, in verse 17, he gives the identity of these. He calls them the elders at the church at Ephesus. And again, this immediately raises the question of what the New Testament teaches about government and structures and leadership in the church. And we've, I know we've gone through a, a topical series on this in the past, and, um, but just a little bit by way of review, some of you might be thinking, well, what, where do we get all these denominations from? And, why, and, and, and all these different denominations in the Christian church mainly come from just different labels and forms of church government. Uh, the, the word, technical word for that is polity, and it has nothing to do with dentures. It's about how one governs the church. Um, and so there's three different words, and I had a chart there on the, uh, that we shared last week, and I want to put that up again because I think this is important for us to get this as a church, that there's three different words in the New Testament that are used for uh, the, the, the leadership in the church. 
and there's three different ones that are used throughout the New Testament, and then there's two different places that the, all three of them, either in a noun or a verb form, are used together. And if you'll notice there, right in the middle of that is Acts chapter 20. And so this passage is a key passage that gives all of them. So there's the word presbyteros in the Greek, where we get the word elder. And immediately you can hear in that word, presbyteros, presbyterian. And so this would be a system of government that would have the elders ruling the church. And then there's another word that you can see used throughout the Bible called episkopos. It's translated overseer or often bishop. And so an episcopal form of government would have bishops. And so maybe the Methodist Episcopal Church, now the United Methodist Church, or the Episcopal or Anglican, or those that would even add on top of those bishops, archbishops and cardinals and popes um, would hold to that Episcopal form of church government. From the word, if any man desire, the office of a bishop, or you that are overseers, episkopos. And then there's this poimane, or shepherd, where we get the word, it's used one time in the noun form in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4, pastor, pastor teacher, one and the same, pastor teacher, the shepherd, shepherd, so pastor. So here in this passage, we see those are the elders, you that are over, to overseer, to shepherd or care for, care for, shepherd the church. So all three of those words in this one passage. And so I'm going to submit to you my opinion, and different people have different opinions, which is why it's okay. When you, Some people get all bent out of shape of, well, there's so many different denominations in the Christian church, and it's all, all that means is people believe what the Bible says and takes it seriously. And people look at things from different perspectives. And so we're all within the household of faith, just, just in, in, those that believe the gospel, that is, just those, just, just maybe in a different room and structure things differently. I have many brothers and sisters in Christ that I think the world of that are Presbyterian. And, and I'm going to be in heaven with them, and they learn, I learn a ton from them. But I couldn't do church with them because we di- have a differing opinion on what the Bible says about what, who, has, who rules the church finally. And I would say, well, the congregation does. That's why I'm a congregationalist. So the three forms of government you would see being uh, elder rule, congregational rule, or Episcopal rule. And so I'm going to be, so, I, so I'm going to submit to you my opinion, which happens to be a historic Baptistic one, um, that these three words that you see on this chart are all referring to the same office from a different angle and a different perspective. They are called elders, verse 17. They are called pat to, to pastor, verse 28, and oversee, bishop, verse 28. Um, so uh, the first term elder would signify spiritual maturity and leadership and decision making in the body they're pastors because the word denotes shepherding and they are overseers bishops in terms that means to watch over administrate over like a shepherd to a flock and then pastor which means the shepherding aspect of that and the teaching aspect of that role so Two things, just by way, just to emphasize that the, who the, about these leaders, they are pastors. Pastors, they care and lead for the church over the congregation. They're pastors. Their job title emphasizes their functionality. They're to feed, they're to tend, they're to protect. This is what they do. This is the image of the shepherd at the gate at the sheep door, spending a lot of times with those coming in and those going out. 
So new members, interviews, digging in, assuring salvation, baptism interviews, talking about those things, and then sheep who are straying or leaving or upset or missing. And so often those shepherds spend a lot of time at the sheep door of the fold. And so if you say, well, that pastor always spends most of his time with the new people and not me. That's because you're in the fold and not at the gate. So when you, you know, so don't run out the gate, but that's good. That sometimes that's a good thing, uh, even though all, all get shepherded. And so uh, we see that going on. So this emphasizes the nature that they're primarily not social workers or psychotherapists or facilitators or program managers or production engineers or entertainment producers or community organizers. They're primarily shepherds. And they're to feed, shepherd, and protect. Now, in the early church, there's something that we don't know, and the, the Bible gives a lot of latitude about how churches would structure things. Um, uh, so there's something, some things that are different in their context than ours. One is that churches work together uh, a lot more. So, so that would say something there. They also met in homes. And so um, there, is, there is some liberty that God gives to churches being structured in different ways to, that everybody could look and say, well, okay, this could mean this. So someone might say, well, that's uh, one church, many locations, like the church in Jerusalem with James, uh, that they would together and then lots of house churches uh, with other elders, maybe each one was assigned to one house or something like that. Or it was one large group of many pastors uh, across the city, each having their own congregation. Or uh, what I'm going to submit to you, so the, the, of the nature of these men, they are pastors, and secondly, they are plural. Notice just the grammar. The elders, plural, of the church, singular. And we see that, this pastoral team throughout the Bible, this plurality among those elders in a single, single, singular church. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 11, the elders plural in the church singular. Acts 15, elders plural, church singular. Acts 14, elders plural, church singular. Plurality of elders in the church at Ephesus. We see that in Hebrews. Submit to those that have the rule over you. Um, that the elders, plural, that rule well in 1 Timothy 5 are worthy of double honor, especially those that labor, spend their time, the vocation in prayer and the word and doctrine. Um, the plurality of the church at Ephesus, at Ephesus was emphasized. Um, James, if any among you be sick, let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to lay hands and pray, anointing with oil. Um, and so I, I'm going to I submit that that is uh, the thing. So, um, so you say, well, why are you bringing this up, Jason? Why are you bringing this up, Jason? Um, well, it shouldn't be needed to point out that because we are arriving in this section of Acts, um, but because we're just going through the book of Acts and not an ulterior agenda. Why are we in chapter 20? Well, because we were in chapter 19 before chapter 20. And why are we going to be? Why are we going to be in chapter twenty-one next week? Well, because we just finished up chapter twenty. That that that. So that's why. Um, much of the book of Acts is functioning on the is focusing on the function and the movement of the church. But along the way, there are many a few places, just like the one we're looking at today, that open up the anatomy and the nature of the church and give us a principle of that. So. For instance, in the beginning of the book, when we saw that story of Eutychus falling asleep uh, 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 and falling out the window, we saw that the church was coming together on the first day of the week, that they were gathering together and that the word of God and that the communion meal, the Lord's table, was part of what they did. So that would give us a picture of the anatomy of what a church does, gathers together on the first day of the week, 
hears from the word of God, celebrates the Lord's table. And this isn't a new concept for us as a church. Um, I mentioned this uh, before, that um, the doctrinal statement that I gave for candidacy to be the pastor here included about the shepherds and their qualifications. In keeping with the New Testament example, I believe the plurality of elders in an assembly should be the normative practice or goal. Um, The document that I sent before y'all voted on me had a, uh, they sent to the deacons and they had a lot of stuff and they distributed that to the church and under the section of goals and vision for the church under leadership I had these bullet points that the church will be under congregational authority that is led by pastors who are assisted by deacons the ability to bring on a youth or music pastor when budgetary funds are available to make associate pastors full-fledged pastors that serve on committees and boards that wouldn't just be considered the pastor's staff, to ideally have the school administrator to be part of that pastoral staff, to move towards a team-based leadership structure and away from the Superman senior pastor idea. And that means bringing associate pastors and lay leaders along to help and oversee ministry areas. Um, So this is not a new thing. So having identified these elders, Paul then moves on to a defense of his ministry in verses 18 and following. Um, there had been this vicious smear campaign that launched against him in Thessalonica and other cities, um, and he was responding to that. But Paul gives a response to defend his ministry and that shares his view of his calling. And so he repeats these words that, you know I was like this among you, and I know, and he's anticipating not ever seeing them again, um, that they have a past together and they, what he's expecting for the future. But then he, in this section that I really want to focus on in our time today, he gives this charge, beginning in verse 27, that has two aspects of it. And so in verse 27, he says to them, or verse 28, I'm sorry, pay careful attention, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for, shepherd, that's where that poimain, shepherd, pastor, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, and here's the other charge, be alert. So he says to... Take heed to the church and watch. So take heed and watch are these two commands he gives them. So the first one he says, take heed. Pay careful attention to these things. To two things you're supposed to take heed to, yourselves and the church. So the shepherds are to first take heed to themselves. Because shepherds, on this side of eternity, under the great shepherd, the under shepherds, are sheep too. And God's sufficient word knows that people tend to focus on others. Like, I, I, can, I, I can be around someone and tell you all of their problems, or what I think their problems are, and then have blind spots about my own. And you can do the same thing. You could sit there and tell me all my problems and not see any of your own. And, and we're great at that, aren't we? 
Uh, If you spend time working with kids, you can focus on other people's kids more than your own or other people's problems more than your own. That's why mechanics are often the ones that have broken down cars in their driveway. That's why guys that do windows and siding usually have a side of their house that you can still see the, uh, um, the, 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 the wrapping and the insulation on the outside because it's not gotten done. That's why teachers will sometimes have kids that weren't able to pass the ACT in, in order to get a scholarship or something like this because we often focus on other things than are on our own. So he says, take heed to yourselves. Tend your own life, your own family, your own marriage. To remind any of those in any type of ministry leadership at any level that the most important thing you have in your life is your relationship with God. So I, I tell our teachers here, if you have to pick between having your devotions and finishing your lesson plans before class starts, have your devotions. That's the most important thing. Your walk with God's the most important thing you have. Everything else flows out of that. Marriage and leadership starts with self and reminding us that everything comes out of our own walk with God. And, and that's one of the reasons why that the qualifications for those deacons and bishops, those overseers and deacons, would, is that they that is all about character. There's only one of those aspects of the qualifications that uh, it, that. Uh, it focuses on ability, and that's being apt to teach. The rest is all about what he must be in character and focuses on his own family. If he can't lead his own family, how is he going to lead the church of God? I mean, so it all comes down. So sometimes we can talk about this, this debate amongst, you know, how it's so hard to make sure you have boundaries between family life and work life and family and ministry. And, so, and no, my family is my first line of ministry. And so I have to wrestle with this and yell this to myself, that I should not feel guilty of making priority of that time. That is not off time. That is part of ministry, because if you lose that aspect of ministry, you lost the whole deal. Um, and, so, um, uh, the, and, so, and so it is for you. And that's why development of those that are in teaching roles here at our church uh, things like sabbaticals and vacations and conferences and classes and continue. All those things are part of a rest and a rotation and time off. Those are all things that are important. And so just, for instance, when you get on an airplane and they, the, maybe the first time you were on there, I, it was qu- kind of cool a couple years ago. Um, uh, we took our kids and flew out of CKB, out of Clarksburg here. And, um, and it was our kids' first time flying on, like, a commercial airline. And you know how they get on, and they tell you, and they fold the thing out and tell you all about the exits. And the first time you hear that, you're, like, glued in, right? And you're studying it, and you're reading it, and, and you're wondering, why isn't everybody else ignoring her? This is really important, right? And, 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 then, and then, then you get to where everybody just ignores it, and it's the cool thing to do to ignore the person. So then they feel like, oh, I'm just going through this thing, and whatever. But what do they do? If the, if the pressure, if the cabin becomes unpressurized, and the gas, the oxygen masks drop, what are you supposed to do? First secure yours, and then those that are with you, right? Take heed to yourself and to all the flock. They minister from your walk with God first and then to those that are with you. So we minister from overflow of our own hearts. Shepherd from your own hearts. Scripture 
warns against the overabundance of ordinations. And that we should guard against that because this is to take heed to this. So take heed, one, to yourselves. Secondly, to the flock. All the flock. All of them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Every single one. So how do you know which parts of the flock do you care for and which ones are you not to care for? This is where I would see an um, implicit, not an explicit need for church membership. So am I supposed to take heed for and shepherd every professing Christian in Harrison County? Everyone that happens to walk by our building and walk in the building? Which ones? The ones that are members of this church that God set us in oversight over. All the flock. Um, and in the note there, it says that those elders, that they are appointed, of which you've been appointed by the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, this work is, they, it, it is not uh, for the church or working for the deacons or for the board, but by the Holy Spirit, appointed in that way, affirmed by the congregation, yes, um, uh, so, and so we should know every person in our charge. And that's why it takes, it's a team sport to know the flock. And sometimes we, we it, what's bad is that it's abnormal for when you hear about individual contact. Uh, that when, when Jesus says that what shepherd wouldn't leave the 90 and 9 to go get the one? He was talking about what normal shepherding is. Like, but this is just what shepherds do. It's basic shepherding. To us, we're like, well, that's like super shepherd, right? That's like this abnormal story. But they're saying, no, this is just what it means to shepherd, shepherding. And then he gives the motivation for this. Why? Which he purchased with his own blood. They are each loved and known and cared for by God. So why should we care about the church? Why should we care? Because Jesus cared. They are the church of God. They are his precious ones. How do we know how precious the church is to Jesus? Look what he paid for her. How do you know those shoes are so important to him? Look what he paid for them. That that boat, that car, that truck. Look what he paid for that house. Look what he paid for that church. So why should we love and care and commit and give and serve and be faithful to the church? Look what he paid for her. So there should be no lackadaisical service towards the church. She is precious to Jesus. This should fill us with love and care for the church. Um, If you've ever had a situation where someone asked you to hold something or drive something or uh, that is theirs and it's much more expensive than anything you could ever afford. Uh, I remember a friend of mine and I was one time, we were had this really expensive car that this guy let us use. We were so careful. We went to a coffee shop and we parked away from all the other cars because we didn't want the chance because this was this guy's car, not ours. And the same way, the church is Jesus' church. It's not ours. We shouldn't be flippant with it. Um, look what he paid for. And we, there's no way we could pay for this thing. It's far more valuable than we could ever do. He purchased it with his own blood. Um, 
This is why God put you here, to help care for Jesus' church, to show the love of Jesus for his church. And sometimes prices do matter. Sometimes the price tag does matter, and it does matter when it comes to the church. The value and price come together. Cheap stuff doesn't last. The cost lets you know the worth. Um, and the church needs to know how precious they are to Jesus. And, now, and there's one side of this that you could see that, that the object of the purchase is the church. Uh, we see this in Ephesians as well. Uh, husbands, you know, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He purchased it. That, that it was a specific purchase. That his intent in dying on the cross was to purchase the church, particularly with his own blood. The intent. Uh, you can, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to dry hard, hard lines in the sand that don't need to be there. But he purchased the church with his own blood. So they're not ours. So it is valuable to him. And he ministers. So, so here's where he, he didn't just die for the church in general. He, he didn't say, okay, um, pew five on the right-hand side, come on up. No, it was Tim, Connie, Jamie, Josh, Hank, Mike, Dick, Lawanta, Calvin, Carol. It was individuals that the, what, you're valuable. The church is valuable. It is purchased with his own blood. He sent, and, he's, and you say, well, the churches are messed up. And he says, he loved it. He purchased it that he might sanctify and make it holy, bring it before him in love. So every blood-bought member of the church is precious. Each one is important. Every member matters. They are specifically known. They're called by name. So you say, Jason, do you love your kids? I don't love my kids as a category. I love my kids as individuals, as Kerrigan and Draper and Madeline. They're individually loved. But do you love your kids? Oh, yes, I love my kids. But it's not the 10-year-old, the 8-year-old, and the 5-year-old. It's, there's a name. There's a person. He loves the church. And church, this is how you should feel. This is how you should feel. That he loved you so much. So as we come to the Lord's table, you are the purchase of his blood. And what we're going to do when we celebrate the Lord's table is just pull out the receipt from that purchase and remember it. That we're purchased by his blood. And then he gives a second charge. He says to pay attention or watch or be alert. Why? Because wolves are coming. And he says they're not. And now so the church has always been targeted. And I love it when bad things happen at our church because it means that Jesus is still working here. And, he's, and, and God's wanting to do something. And that means when there's oppression and outside things, that's good. That's a good sign. That, that, that God's not done. He's working. He's got plans. He's doing that. And, but so there's two different ways because Satan ha- hasn't changed his tactics uh, throughout all of church history. That the church is targeted either by external persecution, those persecuting the church from outside, from internal conflict, 
our own flesh and selfish warring amongst ourselves that James talks about, or from internal, internal false teachers. Now, part of what shepherds do and pastors do is warn about the false teachers out there and name them and say, well, that's not very popular. Don't be so negative. Don't warn against false teachers out there. Yes, but there's also false teaching that comes from within. So don't, to that, that's why it's so important to like watch over curriculum and teachers and what's going on. To watch, to be, pay attention, to be alert. Paul expected this to happen, that from amongst yourselves, there's going to be wolves. Basically, what he said, and this happened in Paul's time. Paul expected this, and several New Testament churches reveal that this, true, this is true. In Colossians, in 1 Timothy, in, in 2 Timothy, in, in 2 Peter, in 1 John, in Jude. In Revelation chapter 2, it even talks about this church at Ephesus, how they had, they had gone and they'd opened themselves up to these false teachings, but they'd come back and go, remember your, remember your first love. And he tells them this church, and we know from Ignatius uh, in church history in the first and second century that there was a great revival in this church at Ephesus that he's talking to here. And so, so he gives, so this happened. And so in a sense, the church is always on the lookout that they do not want to be victims of um, What's the fairy tale where the big bad wolf, who's the girl? Little Red Riding Hood. That the, 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 you know, you know, look at your eyes, grandma, your hands, your grandma, your voice, grandma, your, look at your teeth, grandma. The wolves dressed up as grandma. And the, the church is always going to be the victim of the Little Red Riding Hood syndrome, right? And so we've got to be on watch for wolves. And so we need to pay attention to that, it says here. Be careful. And then he says, he, then in verse 32 and following, he goes, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. He's talking about this. He keeps popping back up. Gospel, grace, gospel, grace. This is the drive. Gospel, grace, which is able to build you up. The word of his grace, the word, the Bible of God's grace, build you up and give you an inheritance among all. You're sanctified. And then he gives a qualification about his life, and this is, and we'll go back to that word of his grace. How I coveted no one's silver or apparel. You yourselves know that his hands ministered. He's speaking here. Um, the historic context is that in this Greco-Roman world, there were often philosophers and teachers who would go around at, for a fee to customers to give speeches. And one way that Paul demonstrated his integrity was by being self-supported, And it goes back to what we saw in Corinth, um, that he was a tent maker. He did not receive funds from those he was evangelizing. He he would self-support in that way. But he did receive funds from churches, even when he's at Corinth as a tent maker, um, those when... Titus and Timothy come from Macedonia with a gift from the Macedonia. We see this in Philippians 4, how those from Mac- they supported him. And he was able to be occupied or to go full time in the word. And so it's not a, when he says this, it doesn't mean that workers at Christian organizations should not be paid. Um, it doesn't mean that any more than to say that workers at a private business or a nonprofit or government agencies should be, all be volunteer either. How would that go over? Everybody that works for the government should just be volunteer, right? Yeah. Um, um, no, both Jesus and Paul said that the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul's point here is that leaders must be people of integrity and transparency. 
that godly ministry is focused on giving, not getting. And false teachers will be known, and they still are today, by the way, by their love for money. When you see a preacher, and it is known about their millions of dollars in their homes and their jets and boats and things like that, beware. Um, They probably didn't get that way by speaking the straight, straight truth of the Bible. I'm not saying if someone has things, it means they're a false teacher. I'm just saying it's a trait of false teachers to love money. And his practice was to work hard and help those that were weak. So in other words, he's able to say to this church, I gave more than I took. And what a great attitude that would be for a church to have. I gave more than I took. If we just had that attitude, it would change this church. If you just had that marriage, it would change your marriage. I gave more than I took. If you just had that attitude with your family, I gave more than I took. If we had that attitude, it would change everything. We had that heart of generosity. He cared about them. He loved them. He cried over them. He gave more than he took. Sometimes people say, man, I went to that church and I'm there and people weren't coming and talking to me and they weren't friendly. What's the Bible say? To have friends, you must first show yourself friendly. Did you give more than you took? Or were you wanting to take more than give? Get that consumer mentality out of the church. Take that to Walmart. Doesn't belong here. Now we should greet and we well, and if we all have that heart that I'm going to give more than I take, oh my, that would change the the, the culture around here, wouldn't it? Give more than we take. But he says, remember, this is a gospel man. He says, I'm the gospel and the word of his grace. Many of you might have noticed this morning that the parking lot looked a little bit better, right? So uh, we had the parking lot had some uh, potholes filled, some cracks filled, a lot of deep cleaning to get a lot of stuff out, and then a a layer of seal. And what they tell me is we probably need to have another layer to coat put on it probably in the spring or summer. But the picture is that there was something that had a lot of holes and cracks and things that were messed up, and there was some cleaning and some filling and some covering that went on. And wouldn't it be so cool if something as little as like that picture of a parking lot, that God would use this body to be a place where people are loved that grace fills the holes and the potholes in their life and the cracks in their lives and covers them with grace. And we want to be like a fresh parking lot, don't we? And that's really what the, go- what the gospel and communion is about. That the word of his grace, he filled our potholes. He, doesn't even, he actually just gave us a whole new lot. He didn't fill it. I mean, he's making all things in the, in the terrible illustration, but it was on my mind this morning. So do you need some patches and repair in your soul? We need to have that in corporate worship. So, some application. We need to find what God wants us to do with our lives and do it. Paul says, I, I, my life's worth nothing. I'm not counting it as valuable, but I want to do what God's called me to do. What is that for you? What is what God's called you to do? Not everything, but the task he's called you to do. What's the summation of your life? What's your one ambition, your one passion? And he says, I kept nothing back. Is there some things you're keeping back in your walk with God? And your commitment to serving God? 
Maybe that's just being saved. Maybe that's coming to him and depending and repentance towards God, belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is your posture towards the church? Do you see it as valuable by what it was purchased for? Or do you kind of get disenchanted and disappointed with it? And as Providence would have it, it was an article that was released on the Gospel Coalition just this morning. And the title was, Four Ways to Love a Disappointing Church. And he says, love the one you're with. And he gives four ways to prepare in prayer, find ways to serve, check your expectations, and stick it out. And then remember her spotless hope that, yes, the church is messed up and full of cracks and potholes, but Jesus promised he purchased this church that he might sanctify and cleanse her. She might be a glorious church without having spot or wrinkle. She'll look good that day. And so we would stick it because you know why? Look what he paid for her. Look what he paid for her. Look what he paid for you. You should feel loved in that.